0: Well, if you were with us last week, uh, we began to kind of build an understanding of the biblical doctrine of the Trinity from the scriptures. You know, what does it mean that we say that we worship one God who exists eternally in three persons, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? And uh, it's important to remind ourselves, this is not something that we can just come up with on our own. The Trinity is not something you can go out into nature and, and discover on your own. It's not something that you can, by your own thought and reasoning, figure out. Uh, it's something that we have to understand and learn from God's revelation. He has to show us who He is in the Bible. Uh, and so, you know, that is our only place, really, to turn to understand who God is as a triune God. And... uh We talked about last week a little bit the way that that comes forward in the Scriptures. In the Old Testament, the Trinity is not explicit. Uh, It's not that that doctrine is absent from the Old Testament, but it's, it's not made clear to us. Whereas you come to the New, and the Son of God becomes flesh. Jesus arrives on the scene. Later, the Holy Spirit is poured out in the church. And all of a sudden, we have much better understanding of who God is and how He's shown Himself to us in that way. Well, before we jump uh, right back in this week, uh, I want to key off a little bit on a question that came up from the end of our time last week, uh, which was, you know, Christianity sometimes comes under the accusation that, you know, you guys worship three gods. And I think Sarah had asked, what is the, what's the problem if we would just say, you know, you're right, we do worship three gods. You know, what's the problem with that? That would be easier, Right. The doctrine of the Trinity is much more difficult to try to explain than than that. Well, you know, I would say a major problem with that is what happens is you divide up the Godhead if if you're going to say, oh, there's three gods here. Uh, So, all of a sudden, we don't have one being, one deity that we worship, but we have three. And there's all sorts of problems that come along with that. Like, uh, of the three who are you going to give your primary allegiance and devotion to are you going to try to divide up your worship between these three gods or or make one the main object of your worship and and the other two less you know there there's problems with understanding the scriptures in that way so you know we have this plan of salvation that's unfolding throughout the scriptures well whose plan is it uh if there's three gods we've got some problem here maybe Maybe you're going to divide things up like, oh, the, the the father is the god of the old testament. He's kind of vindictive and and mean and wrathful. And this other god, the son comes in the new testament. He's the one who brings mercy and is loving. Well, it's like, well, I'm going to choose him, you know, not this other one. Uh, and all of a sudden, you know, you're dividing up scripture. You're dividing up God, and uh, it's a a religion that doesn't really work. You know, we have a lot of examples in the world of what polytheism looks like uh, to worship multiple gods and uh, it's not a coherent, unified thing and it's very far from what the Bible presents. So uh, we, I don't think, tend towards tritheism as it's called, worshiping three gods uh, in our, our minds but you know, it can be tempting to, to say that we do if, if somebody's pressing us on the Trinity and, and you know, we want to simplify it. So, the problem is we can't really simplify the way that God reveals himself to us. And so we just press forward and try to understand who he is better so that we can uh, understand that correctly and also uh, explain it to others, Uh, but also be proper in the way that we address God as one God, uh, both in prayer and in our worship. So, with that, as a little bit of review, uh, I'll just remind you, at the end of our time last week, what we were doing is we were looking at these biblical affirmations. There's one God. God exists in three persons, three distinct persons, and each of these persons is fully God. And, you know, the, the press on that usually comes with the person of Jesus. If somebody's going to want to uh, take away deity from one of the persons of the Trinity, it's typically Jesus The reason for that, I think, is that, you know, with Jesus, we had an actual man walking on the earth. So, you know, he didn't have, you know, a glowing halo around him as we see depicted in the artwork. So, for us to say, this is God, that's pretty controversial uh, to people who don't believe that. But the, the Bible is emphatic on it. You know, throughout the New Testament in particular, the writers are again and again affirming that Jesus truly is God. And uh, one particular way that they do that is by taking Old Testament passages that are spoken uh, to or about the Lord, the God of Israel, and applying them to Jesus. So here's a little challenge I would, I would give you is when you're reading in your New Testament and you see uh, a place where it's quoting from the Old Testament and it's, it's applying this to Jesus, well, Go back and read that Old Testament passage. Don't just skim over that and think, uh, whatever, this is some Old Testament stuff stuck in here. Go back and read the Old Testament. And as you do, in the Old Testament, look at what is this talking about and who is this talking about. And very often you'll find it's talking about the Lord in all caps. That is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then the New Testament author takes and says, this is about Jesus. And that, in the Jewish context uh, of the day, is a very strong uh, statement to say Jesus is the God of Israel in human flesh. And again, it's controversial, especially among Jews, but it is the way that the Bible presents Jesus. So I do want to uh, continue just by giving a couple more verses on Jesus uh, because there's so much here to look at. Uh, and I will remind you, if, if you're taking notes or something, I can send you, or they're making these available, some of these uh, scripture passages, so if you want them to look at later, uh, just come talk to me, or I think in, uh, Holly has them in the office. But let me just uh, read a couple of these verses here that are very explicit about Jesus being God. Uh, we had briefly looked at the, the beginning of John, the Gospel of John last week, when you get to verse 18 of chapter 1, John says, No one has ever seen God. And then he makes a second statement. He says, The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Well, that's really clear. So there's, No one seen God, but God who's at the Father's side has made God known. So he's saying this word from the beginning, uh, who John the Baptist proclaimed, is the Son of God, in chapter 1, verse 34. He has made God known, and he is God. So that's, that's a very clear affirmation of Jesus as God. One other place I want to point you to, the, to on this is the book of Acts, chapter 20. And in this chapter, we have this recounting of the Apostle Paul coming to the elders of the church of Ephesus and talking to them, he says he's never going to see them again. So he's giving them some final instructions. And he says there to them in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, that is, all the church, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God. And here's how he describes the church of God. He said, which he, God, Obtained with his own blood. Well, how is it that God obtains the church with his own blood? You know, God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like us. Well, this is apparently talking about Jesus obtaining the church with his own blood. You know, Paul calls him God there. God obtained the church with his own blood. So so we're not seeing Jesus as some kind of appendage to God. Uh, like just a messenger sent from God, but, but God himself coming in the human flesh to redeem us, to obtain the church with his blood. One other thing that Paul says is Colossians 2.9, that in Jesus, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So again, not, not, uh, he's not tasting of the divine nature, but the fullness of deity is dwelling bodily in Christ. So many affirmations there. Would anyone venture uh, to, to give a reason why it's important for us to affirm the full deity of, of Christ along with his full humanity? There's many things you could say, but uh, anyone want to raise a hand and shout one out here? Yes, Nellie says to give him, or to ascribe to him, I guess, the authority that he, that he has in what he's saying, his teaching, and ultimately his, his death and resurrection would be included there. The Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed, saying. What about the Nicene Creed? Oh, sure.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that would, wasn't the purpose of
0: it, but kind of. Yep. Yes, yeah, so the Nicene Creed, Yep, yeah, it is affirming these things that, uh, that Jesus is fully God and fully man. Uh, we will look at that actually in a few moments here, uh, a part of it. So in this, as it was mentioned this morning, you're putting yourself in the full line of church history by doing that. Uh, if you're affirming Jesus' deity, this is the church from the time of the apostles in the New Testament forward has affirmed this. So uh, there's a continuity that's there. We're not some kind of wacko offshoot by affirming Jesus' full deity. Susan? Be? Had to be yeah, Susan's saying that he had to be more than a mere man to do what he did. I assume you're referring to his death on the cross in our place for our sins and the power to rise, the power to rise from the dead. That's right. So he actually could... Could overcome death and pay the penalty before God, take His wrath that's meant for us. So these things all are related to each other. Uh, so who Jesus is is not unrelated to His ability to to carry out His work. Jesus was on the yep, Nellie's uh, mentioning. I think you see in the Gospels that Jesus is saying things that He can see people's thoughts. In their hearts, he knows things that we can't know. He's omnipotent. He knows everything. And how could this be the case if he wasn't God? So that's right. Uh, One more. Last one here, Tim. Yep. That's right. He's mentioning the, the the Pharisees. Uh, other Jewish people were picking up stones to cast on Jesus to kill him because he was claiming to be God. So, uh, you know, if, if we don't affirm that Jesus is fully divine, yet he's claiming to be, then we have a big problem there because either he's some lunatic or, uh, or he's lost, you know, he's off his rocker here uh, or he's just flat out deceiver. Uh, so, but if he's actually God as he says that he is, then he's worthy of our worship and, and our obedience. Eli, Eli last word. Yep. He mentions these three uh, classic categories Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord if you take his claims about himself. So that's right. Uh, and we are going to fall on the side of Lord here at Valley Bible Church. Let's move on uh, to the Holy Spirit. There's not as much written in the Scriptures explicitly about the Holy Spirit as there is about Jesus in the New Testament, but uh, there is affirmation of his deity. And uh, there's, there's some interesting ways that that's done. One is very similar to Jesus, where you see something in the Old Testament that is spoken of about the Lord, the God of Israel, and it's applied to the Spirit, in this case, in the New Testament. So uh, you may be familiar with uh, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This is the great promise of the new covenant that the Lord will make with his people. And I'll read it uh, for us here. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Well, there's any question about who's giving that promise. It says it over and over again there. It says, declares the Lord, declares the Lord, declares the Lord, declares the Lord. Well, if if we get to the New Testament, uh, and you can turn to Hebrews 10, if you'd like, verses 15 through 17, the, the writer of this epistle does something interesting. In Hebrews 10, 15, he says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. So this passage in Jeremiah 31, that's the Lord, the God of Israel, Yahweh, declaring his new covenant promise, the writer of Hebrews takes and says, hey, the Holy Spirit is saying these things. Well, that can so the Holy Spirit to say these things can only be true if If he is that God. So much like we see with Jesus, the New Testament then is affirming that the Holy Spirit is fully divine. He is God. Another key passage with the Holy Spirit and his divinity comes in Acts chapter 5, where Ananias and Sapphira are in the early church, and they have some dishonest dealings. They sell some land under a pretense that they're going to give the full proceeds to the church. And then they come and give part of the proceeds to the church, under again, under the uh, presumption that it's the full proceeds. And they're confronted on it, and ultimately the Lord puts them to death for this grievous sin. And in Acts chapter 5, verse 3, uh, it is Peter confronting Ananias. And he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. You catch there, verse 3, he's saying Ananias has lied to the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, he says, you have not lied to man, but to God. It's a very clear affirmation that the, the Holy Spirit uh, is not some kind of like, angel sent from God or something, but this is God himself. Which is very big when you consider things like this new covenant promise that we just read in Jeremiah 31. Well, how, how will everyone of God's people know him? How is God going to put his law within them and write it on our hearts. Well, the Holy Spirit actually is doing this ministry. And the Holy Spirit is left with us in the church after Jesus departs and ascends to heaven. We've seen uh, some Old Testament uh, workings of the Holy Spirit all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1-2 speaks of the earth being without form and void, and it says, "...the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters." So even from creation, the Holy Spirit's there. We don't have a full-fledged, explicit doctrine of the Trinity being fleshed out in Genesis 1, but we can see things like that there. And then just one more passage I want to point to you here from 1 Corinthians 2, verses 10 and 11. Paul says, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of god for who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him so also no one comprehends the thoughts of god except the spirit of god it's directly relating to what we heard this morning who knows the mind of the lord well nobody on this earth no created being can say that they do but the spirit of god knows God's thoughts, it says. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Well, that's true because the Spirit of God is God. He's fully divine. You know, so if we, we have these, these three persons being uh, described as fully God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's, it's very difficult to fully understand this and we can't, I think, because there's a mystery here. But there's a lot of danger that surrounds the doctrine of the Trinity. The danger is going astray from the Bible's teaching on it. One of them we mentioned a few minutes ago, tritheism is denying that there is only one God. But historically, there's been some other aberrations that have come out, like modalism. You know, there's, there's one person who appears to us in different forms at different times. You know, this time he's the Father, this time he's the Son, later he's the Holy Spirit. That's a a heretical teaching that kind of comes out of a misunderstanding of the Trinity. Uh, And you've seen some verses, if you were with us last week, that directly contradict that, where you see all three persons of the Trinity acting together. Arianism uh, was another historical heresy that came out of this, denying the full deity of the Son and usually the Spirit as well. Uh, you know, so you might say, like Arius himself did, that the Son was at one time created by the Father. There was a time before the Son existed, the Father created him. You might say, well, the Son was eternal, but he wasn't equal to the Father in divinity or in his, his being or his attributes. That's called subordinationism. So it's Jesus is God, but he's some kind of like lesser God. There's also adoptionism, that Jesus was born as an ordinary man. But once you get to his baptism, God adopts him as his son, and he gives him some kind of supernatural powers, but he's not an eternal being. You see, all these things, they're they're strange if you think about them, but what they are is they're kind of like taking the target and missing a little bit. Like you've got the same persons, but not quite the way the Bible describes them. Yeah. That subordination. Um, when Christ was on earth, did he subordinate himself to the Father? Jonathan's asking if Jesus subordinated himself to the Father when he was on Earth. I'm going to hold off on that question because we're going to get there shortly here, um, but we will get there. Let me just speak. Uh, to this difficulty with the doctrine of the Trinity. I think it's difficult. Our temptation is to want to simplify it and make it more understandable and explainable, but we really can't. Uh, and There's a theologian, actually the men have been studying a book of his in men's equipping, J.I. Packer. He says of the doctrine of the Trinity, he says, the historic formulation of the Trinity seeks to circumscribe and safeguard this mystery, not explain it That is beyond us, and it confronts us with perhaps the most difficult thought that the human mind has ever been asked to handle. It is not easy, but it is true. They're saying you're not going to encounter any more difficult concept than the doctrine of the Trinity, and you're never going to fully understand it. But we do affirm it, and we seek to grow in our understanding of it, and we we guard it uh, through things like doctrinal statements. So, there is a lot at stake in this. Uh, Another theologian, Wayne Grudem, has mentioned a few different things that are at stake with understanding the Trinity correctly. Uh, Some of these have been mentioned. One is the atonement. If Jesus is merely a created being, he's not God, how can he bear the full wrath of God for our sins and then rise from the dead? If if he's not fully God, can we really trust him to save us completely? If he's a created being, is he powerful enough to redeem us fully? Might he not be able to come back and, and finish this work he started? If he's not God, should we depend upon him in prayer? Why is it that we, we pray in Jesus' name? Uh, if he's not God, how can we depend that he's actually going to get our prayers to God? Likewise with the Spirit, if the Spirit is not God, could he really cause somebody who's spiritually dead to be born again through a word that's proclaimed, the gospel? If the Spirit's not God, would he be powerful to do that? And, and likewise, the Spirit gives gifts among the body. Well, could, could we trust the Spirit to do that perfectly and, and sovereignly and so that the body works in accord with one another in love? Uh, According to what wisdom would the Spirit be distributing gifts if He's not fully God? I mean, there's a lot of things that start to make this whole thing that God is doing in the world a bit shaky if you're not affirming the full deity of all the persons of the Trinity. You know, if God's not triune, if He's just simply a a unitary being, could we be in relationship with Him? If He's existed for all eternity just by Himself, and one day decided to create all that is, well, he's probably not a relational God. And how would we expect to relate to him? So there, there's a lot of things that, that come apart if you lose the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, Herman Bavink is another theologian. He has said, In the confession of the Trinity throbs the heart of the Christian religion. Every error, that is, error of the faith, results from or upon deeper reflection may be traced to a wrong view of this doctrine. Just saying every false teaching out of the church, if it's not directly related to the Trinity, you can trace it back to an error there somehow. This is at the center of the Christian faith. It's very important for us to get right then. So we we are then going to shift gears a little bit now uh, and begin to talk about roles and relationships within the Trinity. This gets a little bit to what Jonathan was asking about a few minutes ago. You know, so we've said that God exists eternally as these three persons, one God. But we haven't talked about the relationships within the Trinity. Has anyone, you can raise hands if you have, have, has anyone encountered this notion that God created humans because he was lonely? I have. I've, I've heard this taught before when I was younger that uh, God wanted someone to be in relationship with to love him, but he was lonely, so he created us. Well, the doctrine of the Trinity shows that that's entirely false. Because God, as triune, has existed from eternity in relationship. It means that there has been a fellowship and a community within the Trinity, within the Godhead, that's always existed. So God wasn't lonely, to create us. He didn't need us for a relationship in that sense. And what more fulfilling relationship could there have been between the three members of the Trinity to be in communion with each other? We, we can't fill some kind of void there. Well, I'd ask you to consider a couple of verses that speak to this uh, disposition of God within himself, within the Trinity. So in the book of First Timothy... Paul speaks to Timothy, this uh, young associate of his, of having received the gospel from God. But the way he he describes it, he says that it is the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted. That's curious there. He he calls God the blessed God. Well, a a basic way to translate that word blessed, that's more common for us, is, is happy. If you look up in a, a dictionary, the New Testament, that's what it means. So, the glorious gospel of the happy God with which I've been entrusted. Well, Paul's been entrusted with this gospel, and he's saying God is happy within himself. If God's giving a good news for sinners, well, his happiness is not coming from us. It's happiness within, within himself. And further in the book, in First Timothy six fifteen, he's going to say the same thing again of God. He says, "He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the blessed and only sovereign, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords." And why does Paul find it necessary to attach that word to God that he's he's blessed? I think he's describing God a little bit for us of, of who he is in himself uh, as a triune God. God is eternal, he can be eternally happy because he's happy in himself in relationship within the Trinity. And the amazing thing in the New Testament is that it shows us that through faith in Jesus, we are brought into this joy of God's. So listen to the way Jesus talks about it in the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 23. You're probably familiar with this. the the servants are given different numbers of talents. They're to do with them as the, the Lord has said. And they're, they have to give an accounting at the end of it. And at the end, Jesus says, Matthew 25, 23, that the faithful servants here uh, on the day when their work is assessed. It says, His master said to him, the faithful servant, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Then he says, enter into the joy of your master. So God has a joy within himself that he's welcoming his faithful servants into. Likewise Jesus says to his disciples in John 15:11, "These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full." So we're getting a little bit of this teaching of of who God is in himself and what he's actually welcoming us into, there's, there's a joy about God, and uh, it's an interrelational joy within the Trinity. For those he redeems through Christ, we are welcomed into God's joy. And you can, you can see this between the members of the Trinity a little bit when Jesus is here on earth. So uh, we've mentioned his baptism before, where Jesus comes up out of the water. John the Baptist baptizes him, and his voice from heaven speaks. It's the Father's voice. And he says, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. You know, the Father could have just said, This is my Son. This is who he is. And he is partly identifying who Jesus is, but he gives us more than that. He says, This is my beloved Son, My son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. And then you have the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. So what we're seeing is the pleasure of the Father in the Son and his love for him. This happens again when Jesus is up on this mountain being transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Again, we get a voice from heaven. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Very similar language here. But do you, you hear the delight of the Father in the Son there? He loves He loves His Son more than He loves anything else. He's He's ultimately uh, eternally delighted in His Son. And he is in His incarnation as the God man. He's delighting in Him here. Jesus then later, uh, when He's preparing to go to the cross, prays to the Father. John 17 is this conversation we get to be let in on a little bit between the Son and the Father. And he says there in verse 26, To the Father, I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Then he gives us the reason why, or the purpose of it. He says that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Wow, so the Father has loved the Son... And the Son is desiring that that love of the Father's for Him would be in His disciples and He in them. So, so we get this concept again that the God has love for Himself. There's love from the Father for the Son. The Son, we see several times, loves the Father uh, and things like that. So there's, there's this love within the Trinity, this joy, this happiness. And Jesus' disciples are being welcomed into that. So... Wow, that's, that's big. The love and joy of God is something that we get to experience as believers. Not in fullness now. Uh, we are not yet perfected. Jesus is going to come back, and we will be welcomed in in a much fuller way. But even now, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. So we, we have the love of God who's been poured out. The love of God has been poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So just a question for you. This is interesting to, to think about a little bit, this, these relationships between the members of the Trinity and how we relate to that. So the question is, how does this strike you, that God is eternally happy and loving and Trinitarian fellowship, that what our salvation does is brings us into that love and fellowship? Anybody have thoughts or comments about that? Sounds good to, Sounds good to Mitchell. I agree with you.
1: in the situation of not in the deity of him and how that's totally different. And then being an identical twin, there's another part of me that's a little bit confused at it's part of, she's different, but we're seeing 1.1, 1. 1, but two. <laughs> mm-hmm. So there's a lot of human you've to keep growing out of our thought processes with so understanding this concept. Kind of so for me, it's about just letting myself not think. Yeah. A brain that wants to think
0: too much. Yeah. So Nellie's mentioning the difference between you know, we're not commanded to love ourselves, uh, you know, in this way that it seems that God is loving himself. And, and so why is there this distinction here? It's, it makes it confusing. And that's, that's a really good uh, part of it to bring out here because, you know, it's sinful for us to be just loving ourselves, you know, love yourself more than anything else. Well, that's, that's clearly in violation of God's command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Well, why is it sinful for us to love ourselves? It's because we aren't the ultimate thing. We are not. We're not what's worthy of ultimate love and devotion and worship. God is. We're and we're, an idol. we're sinners. We're making ourselves an idol. That's right. Well, if God is worthy of all that, then it, it is only right and fitting for him to love what is most deserving of love and honor and worship. It's actually righteous for God, to delight in himself above all else. If he delighted in something else, if he delighted in his creation more than anything else, well, that would be kind of some kind of idolatry on God's part. He'd may be making his creation to be God, but he's the only being for which it is right and fitting to love himself above all else. Uh, and that's true for us. We are to worship and love him above all else. Neil has something to say on that. That's absolutely right. I think you all heard that, that God loves what is most lovely and beautiful and excellent. Every, every good attribute that there is, God has in the greatest measure possible, infinite measure. Uh, God is altogether lovely, you know, as it says. So uh, it is, it's fitting in that sense for God to, to love what is most beautiful and lovely and glorious, which is himself. And... That is not true of us, so we are also to love what is most lovely and good and glorious and beautiful, and that's also for our greatest good. Tim. That's right. Tim mentions that God, when he gives an oath, swears by himself because there's nothing greater for him to swear by. Yep, Matt. Yeah, he's mentioning that self-love within the Trinity is important. It's important to keep in mind that this is three persons within one God so that it's not just, you know, one person loving himself. This is, there's a, again, there's a relationship aspect here within the Trinity. Uh, And again, as has been mentioned multiple times, this is not easy to understand and none of us understand it fully. I don't. And I don't think that we will because it's beyond us. You know, this is the reason I think we mentioned last week there's difficulty with analogies. Analogies can help us in some respects, thinking of there's possibility to be three and one in the same thing. But I think they don't really help us understand how the Trinity works. Uh, I'm convinced that there's no analogy that actually helps us in understanding these more difficult parts of the, the concept. If there was, the Bible might have given it to us, but it didn't. So, you know, we, we seek to worship God truly and to understand how he's described himself as best as we can by his word, and then we trust him. Uh, and, and we're okay with the fact that he's greater than us, that we, we can't exhaust who he is uh, because he's God. So with that, uh, if, there's, if there's these relationships, then there also can be and are different roles within the members of the Trinity. And so, you know, we can, we can seek to look at the scriptures to find out how do we understand the different roles of the members of the Trinity a bit. And of the Father, again, as I've mentioned before, the Father tends to be one of the less controversial parts of understanding this because the father is typically affirmed by most if you affirm uh, that God exists, that he is God. The son and the spirit tend to be more controversial. But the father uh, is typically affirmed in different statements of faith, various things you'd find throughout the Bible. Here's an example from a statement. It says that he is an infinite, unchangeable, personal spirit, perfect in holiness, wisdom, power, love justice, goodness, and truth, that he's the maker, sustainer, and ruler over all things, that he concerns himself mercifully and righteously in the affairs of men, that he hears and answers prayer. Well, if you you want to sum up the the role of the Father, uh, our very own elder affirmation of faith, elder and teaching affirmation of faith, does this by calling God the Father the fountain of all being. And there are different verses you can go to for that. One of them we just heard this morning from Romans 11. So Romans 11:36, 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. You talk about the Father's the fountain of all being. Uh, so there's, there's nothing that exists from anywhere else. Uh, all of creation depends on him. Uh, all that there is. In existence is from him. We also have 1 Corinthians 8 6. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. So, from him are all things, for him we exist. Again, I think these things aren't entirely controversial with the Father uh, in the sense that if you affirm that there's a God who's over all, those things often are affirmed. But when we add to the Son to the picture, we, we then have to relate Him to the Father. And one attempt to understand the relationship between the Son and the Father is, is by talking about eternal generation, the eternal generation of the Son. And again, the uh, elder and teaching Affirmation of Faith uses language like this. It, it talks about the Son as being eternally begotten. So it's interesting, the Apostle John uh, several times uses a word in his gospel that if you're familiar with, for instance, the King James Version, uh, you'll remember it'll talk about God's only begotten son. And many modern translations don't use that kind of language. Uh, they'll usually say his only or one and only or unique son. But just listen to a few of these verses as translated in that uh, that method of calling it only begotten uh, like the king james this is john chapter 1 verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth john 1:18 just a few verses later no one has ever seen god the only begotten god who is at the father's side he has made him known and John three sixteen. This is probably familiar to all. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, among scholars, there's there's a lot of discussion and debate about that word, that only begotten or only. How do you understand John's use of it? And many want to stay away from translating translating it as only begotten because. You know, you might give an impression with that, that there is some kind of literal begetting or birthing of the Son. That there was some event that preceded the Son coming into being and becoming the Son. And, and that's a good impulse. You know, the, any kind of understanding that God was originally unitary and then later he became three persons or something like that is clearly false and unbiblical. yes. There you go. Or, or. She mentioned that some groups will try to distinguish him as uh, that there's other sons there of God. Uh, so the only begotten son, just the uniqueness of, of who Jesus is, is important. Well, if even if you don't translate that as only begotten son, I think you have the same difficulty just in calling him the son. Because if... If you have a son and a father, isn't there already some kind of notion of, of a relatedness there? Listen to how uh, theologian John Frame talks about this problem. He says, the terms father and son bring to our minds the idea of generation. So even without this language of only begotten or not, we already have, we have the same problem. But when we try to apply that idea, the idea of generation, to the divine being, words fail us when we try to refine it, to make it appropriate to the divine being, its meaning seems to slip away from us. Again, we're getting this difficulty of how do we apply these concepts to God. And to say that Jesus is the only Son, the only begotten Son of the Father, it does tell us one thing, for sure at least. It tells us that he is truly God as the Father is God. That he is of the same substance as the Father. So Jesus isn't something other. The Father is God and Jesus is God. So that's really important to, to understand that if you don't understand anything else about it. But but it's also affirming that there's, there's some kind of roles within the Trinity. There's specific roles for specific persons within the Trinity. You know, the names of Father and Son are not reversible. So fitting for the Son being the Son, it was appropriate for him to be the one to become incarnate, to take on a human nature. Yet it would not have been appropriate for the Son to send the Father into the world in this way. And Jesus makes much over the fact that he obeys the Father, yet the Father is not said to obey the Son. The Father hands his kingdom over to the Father, he receives it back from him, The Father glorifies the Son, that the Son may glorify the Father. And uh, as we we just heard there, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. So there's some kind of, you see this kind of ultimate, this fountain of all being that the Father is. Everything comes back to Him. So I want you to listen to a couple other verses that communicate something of the role of the Son in relationship to the Father and keep in mind as you hear hear them, we have also this factor of incarnation at play with the Son that makes things sometimes difficult to parse out. Uh, but nonetheless, we're we're hearing the relationship of the Son and the Father. So Colossians 1:15, he, the Son, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So the invisible God exists, and the image of the invisible God is Christ. Now, the firstborn part, I I will mention to you, uh, a firstborn has rights of inheritance. That's the point that Paul's making there. Uh, He's not trying to say that Jesus is the first created being or something like that. Uh, He's talking about him having rights of inheritance, but he is the image of the invisible God. Likewise, Hebrews 1.3 talks about the Son. It says, He is the radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Radiance of God's glory, exact imprint of his nature. And so we're getting some, some really big things here. Everything that God is, God the Father, the Son is as well. He's, he's got this, this divinity uh, imaged forth in him eternally. In John 5, we find Jesus saying that with his voice, he can command the dead and those who hear will live. It's a pretty big claim. Well, in verse 26, he grounds that claim by saying, For as the Father has life within himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. If I understand it correctly, to have life in yourself is something to do with self-existence. God has life in himself. He's, he's self-existent. And he's given life in himself to the Son. So the Son is self-existent. So again, we're seeing that as the Father is, so is the Son. John 1.4 said that before the Son became flesh, in the Word was life. A similar statement there. So it's really difficult to try to understand this eternal generation or eternal begottenness of the Son. You can read a lot of books on it and find that the the smart scholars wrestle and wrestle and wrestle over it. And that's okay. Again, this is we're talking about God here. But he is eternally the Son of the Father is the important thing to understand. We're getting clues, I think, within the scriptures about these roles within the Trinity, but we have to be very careful to avoid going off track into speculations. And there wasn't a time before the Son was the Son. He eternally is the Son. So there was, to say that he's eternally begotten is not to say, oh, there was some time in eternity past in which the Son was begotten. No, he's, he's eternally been the Son. So that's why we say it's, he's eternally begotten. He's always been with God. The Father did not create the Son, nor did he at some point give the Son Full deity. He always had that in his being. So the fact of the Son being the Son, again, confirms that he is of the same substance as the Father. So more than in any human situation, we can say, like Father, like Son. So again, confusion, cloudiness, if that's here, be okay with it, because it's probably not going away. Uh, But the Bible affirms these things. Uh, So Don's asking about... So that
1: was 2 Corinthians
0: 5.21. Yeah, so he's asking about how how it could be in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So... It's not, I don't think that's talking about God making the Son in terms of creating him. Uh, I think that's, that's him making him to be you know, a representative sinner on our behalf, that, that he was crucified as a sinner, though he knew no sin. Basically, he was crucified as a substitute for us. So in eternity, Jesus wasn't sin for us, but in his incarnation as a man, he, he became our substitute. Uh, and So before he became a man, he wasn't that. He wasn't a representative uh, sinner to die in our place, even though he had no sin. Th- does that make sense?
1: Yeah, so then he was obviously like made in that, he was aware of the plan. Mm-hmm. Then why is there the calling of, why have you forsaken me? In the end?
0: my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, he's asking why... Wh- Yeah, he's asking about the, why Why have you forsaken me? Uh, Psalm 22, which Jesus cries out at the cross. Yeah, I, I don't think he's asking for the reason why God has forsaken me. It's it's like a, a cry of, in some sense, despair. Like the the Father is condemning Jesus on the cross. He's, He's pouring out his wrath on him as a sinner, though he's not. So... In some sense this, Jesus has enjoyed unbroken fellowship with the Father from all eternity, and here he is being crucified as a sinner, uh, though he had no sin. So uh, you know it's a talk about agony there, is the Son of God being put to death for our sins in the, go ahead. Yeah, and there's, again, if you want to talk about another area where there's a lot of conversation about how, to, how do you work all that out uh, at the cross and in between the cross and resurrection, the, the fellowship of the Father and the Son and how he's representing us, there's a lot, there's a lot uh, you can talk about in, in thing there. I think it's a fulfillment of David's psalm in a sense David was experiencing some bad things in psalm 22 you know that he's writing about uh and Oh yeah we'll go yeah Todd's going to answer all these questions for Don uh but you know Jesus is doing that in the ultimate sense you know he's he's suffering the greatest is the he's the fully righteous one who never deserves to suffer like this and he's suffering in our place. Uh, so, I mean, it's like, in a sense, he's like, it's like he's being abandoned by God, but he never deserves to be. He deserves only unbroken fellowship and blessing and, and joy, uh, and yet he's dying as a sinner. Uh, and he's, he's doing all this so that we can be redeemed, and, and it says, you know, become the righteousness of God uh, to bring us to that place. So we can talk uh, more afterward, but you know, I think I think he's giving us some insight into what's happening there uh, by giving us that. We are just a few more minutes here, so let's see if there's other questions we want to address before we break for today. I think there's a, there's a lot to chew on and the relationships of the, within the Trinity. Sarah. Yep, so she's asking about how how do we understand that Jesus empties himself? Uh, I think you're probably referring to Philippians 2. Let me just read that there. Paul's exhorting the church to let each of you not look only to his own interests, this is verse 4, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, the Son of God, to use those words, somehow emptied himself and went down as a servant even to death, and then he's brought back up and exalted to the highest place. Well, I think, uh, you know, when you take this together with the rest of the New Testament and the Gospels and Jesus' own teaching, what it doesn't mean is that he somehow gave up his deity or something like that. Uh, So it's pretty clear from Jesus' words, as we've we've seen several already, that he's claiming that he is at that time God when he's walking in the earth. So he's not meaning that he gave up his deity, but he is—he is not exercising it as he could. Uh, his, you know, so he has the power to do anything. We just read that he upholds the universe by the word of his power, uh, and. Even when he's going to the cross, he could, he could strike down all of his enemies just with a word. You know, he says, I could call for 12 legions of angels. So, uh, but he's, he's not exercising these things in the way that he could. Uh, he's, he's humbling himself by taking on a human nature, and that's not replacing his divine nature. This is how I understand it. But he's, he's taking additionally a human nature uh, to himself, and in some sense, he's giving up his his rights to use these, uh, or, I mean, he's just not exercising them, so to speak, in that he's he's going to go through all this suffering and give himself limitations. But, I mean, it's a really difficult thing to understand how, how in one person do you have the divine nature and being and a human nature and being. How, how do you even understand that? Um, so... Go ahead.
1: So for me, it makes a lot more sense that he has this, I don't want to feel this because it's going to hurt, you know? It's under the flesh body that's going to be hurt, that's spiritually. Spiritually he knows that it has to be what it needs to do, and he, and he knows the end result, and he knows the thing know. know but he actually, for the first time, God is experiencing fleshy feelings of uh, what's like to stub a toe, or, you know, so to me it makes more sense of, he's not just his nature of human, he's feeling the
0: yeah she's mentioning the Jesus experienced what we experience as humans, you know the, he's exposed to temptation he's he's got to eat and sleep like all this stuff uh so it's a very humbling thing, but ultimately he's humbling himself to the point of death, it says there, so he's learning obedience through what he suffered and and so forth uh and it's, it's, these are these are difficult things but He's feeling the emotions, also. He's feeling the emotions. yep. Yep. So that's true. He's he's feeling the emotions, all of it. Uh, this is the last word, Tim. Yep. Yeah, if you think about it, when Jesus walked on the earth, people who didn't believe in him, all they saw was a man. So his divine glory was not on display. There's a glimpse of it at the Transfiguration, for instance, and, and he rises in glory and ascends and, and all of that. But, but you could say that his glory was veiled. So um, I'm going to stop here. Brian will say other words because he was opening his mouth here, but uh, let me pray for us and uh, we can talk more afterwards too. Father, we ask that you would help us in these things. We, we confess that we don't understand what your word says well about who you are, and we have much to learn. Uh, we want to be faithful to you. Uh, we want to know you more, that we could honor you and glorify and love you more. So help us in that, we ask, even today, in Jesus' name, amen.